mentioning him giving his approval at Stephen's execution. He mentions how he quickly took the lead in a great persecution against the disciples, the followers of Jesus. But our text this morning is about how an enemy of the church becomes one of its greatest advocates and encouragers. The title of the message is An Enemy Defeated. Our text is about this man named Saul, whose life was changed. You cannot trace the spread of Christianity without giving this particular person major credit, although he himself would never see himself in that light and only reflect that the message itself was the glory of it all and the real cause for its growth. But this man named Saul, a man that could be described as a busy little man, energetic, talkative, not too much to look at, who wrote with an unusual clarity and boldness, although his public speaking fraught with insecurities and a lack of polish and eloquence, and yet he never shrunk from speaking even before kings. He also wrote much of what we know as our New Testament Bibles. N.T. Wright, in a biography of Paul, writes this, Paul's letters in a standard modern translation occupy fewer than 80 pages. Even taken as a whole, they are shorter than almost any single one of Plato's dialogues or Aristotle's treatises. It is a safe bet to say that these letters, page for page, have generated more comment, more sermons and seminars, more monographs and dissertations than any other writings from the ancient world. This man, who is the enemy of the church, an enemy of God, is changed in Acts chapter 9 and becomes one of the most significant proponents of the spread of the gospel into the known world. I want to start off by listing a few ways, a few things that we can gain from knowing and studying Saul's conversion. First, his conversion shows us what constitutes genuine conversion. Okay, now there are going to be some things that very much distinguish Saul's conversion. So while the circumstances of his conversion and some of our conversions might be distinct, not the same, there are still characteristics of his conversion that are common to all. And so we want to look at those and evaluate and realize and see, are those characteristics common in yours so that we can recognize God's saving work in our own lives as well as in the lives of others? Secondly, his conversion and calling all help us understand everything that he wrote in the New Testament. You cannot truly make sense of all what Paul, Saul, same person, and by the way, let me just throw it out there. Uh, It wasn't that his name got changed, okay? It wasn't Saul, uh, the unbeliever, and he gets saved, and now he's Paul, the apostle, Paul, the believer. He just had two names. Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Greek uh, Roman name, and so it wasn't uncommon for a person to have two names, so If I say Paul instead of Saul or Saul instead of Paul is the same guy, forgive me if I go back and forth, it might slip out. It's the same guy. Second point, his conversion and calling help us understand everything else 
that he wrote. His conversion is the needed backdrop to understand everything in the epistles, in the letters that he wrote to the churches. It, it's impossible to read his letters, try to apply what he's written in those letters without comprehending fully the source of it all, which was what Christ did to change this man's heart and life. Thirdly, maybe most importantly, his conversion encourages great hope and amazement for God to save even what he calls himself the worst of sinners. God's grace is able to take even the most blatant enemies of God and God's people and transform them into friends of God and even developing them into the most outspoken promoters of the gospel. This is amazing, and this should give us great hope. The worst of sinners, God can touch and change and transform and make them useful in his kingdom. So let's read our text together this morning. We're in Acts chapter 9. We'll read the first 19 verses. But Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying. And he is seen in a vision, a man named Ananias, come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. 
Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Let's begin looking at this with point number one, Saul the enemy. Saul the enemy. Saul's reputation as the enemy of the church. Everything that Luke has told us so far about this man tells us that he was the enemy of the church, that he was filled with a consuming zeal to rid the world of Christians, approving of Stephen's execution, ravaging the church, dragging men and women into prison. And now we begin our text this morning. He is still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. But how did Saul come to be such an ardent and violent force against Jesus' disciples. Where did this come from? Why was he the way he was? In other parts of the New Testament, Paul gives us aspects of his own resume, and we can piece together who this man was. He describes himself previously like this. I was advancing in Judaism. This is from Galatians chapter 1. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. In Philippians chapter 3, he gives more detail about his resume, and he goes off on this rant, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Okay? This young boy was probably the dream of every Jewish set of parents. I mean, he loved God. He loved his Bible. He went to church. He studied his Bible. He was an altar boy. I mean, he did it all. He grew up like every good Jewish mother would want their boy to grow up, and he excelled. He was sharp. He was smart. He was at the top of his class. He excelled in zeal. The predominant characteristic that he describes was zeal. And in Acts 22, another account where he himself is telling his testimony, he says, I was zealous for God. And I'm trying to convince you he was an enemy of God. And he started off saying, I was zealous for God. Now, every good Jewish student of the Bible had a certain way of understanding zeal. Zeal was defined by the hero of zeal in the Old Testament, a man by the name of Phinehas. In Israel's history, when they were nearing the end of their journey through the wilderness, they were about to enter the promised land. They were in the land near Moab or the land of Moab, and they fell into sin. Apparently, the Moabite women were too good to pass up, very attractive, and so the men started taking them. And they were, they were in these relationships with these Moabite women, which meant they forsook the Lord and just took on their pagan worship. And so now Israel as a nation is falling again into idolatry. And that's what's going on. And God to stop this sends a plague. And so a plague is coming through the nation of Israel, and many are dying. 
in the midst of this plague, taking out so many, one man in particular, just blatantly in the sight of everybody and in the sight of Moses, takes a Moabite woman and in front of everybody for all to see, takes her into his tent. It's a blatant disregard. Phineas, filled with zeal, grabs a spear, follows him into the tent, and thrusts that spear through the two of him in one fell swoop, killing both the Israelite man and the Moabite woman. Psalm 106 gives us a little poem about it. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. Okay, you see what's happening? Zeal is being defined. And if you're really zealous for God, you're willing to kill. That's what Saul grew up with. So Saul sees himself as an advocate for God, zealous for God. And he's going around and he sees the Christians, the disciples of Jesus, as enemies of God. They are taking away from God. They are threatening the sanctity of the temple. They are compromising the law of God. He's heard statements in Stephen's testimony. He's heard rumors about what Jesus taught. Destroy this temple. And fulfilling the law or doing away with the law. And so Saul has this mindset that these are the enemies of God. And so in his zeal for God, he is committed to doing away with the disciples of Jesus. His zeal and his actions all made sense based on what he believed about Jesus. Jesus, in his mind, was a man clearly condemned by the Jewish religious leaders and executed in a way that clearly depicted him as being cursed by God. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. In this situation, the cross. He died a criminal's death. He was executed, condemned. This was Saul's understanding until the road to Damascus. Point number two, Jesus, the bright light. He's on his way to, to Damascus. He's going to find more Christians. And he's going to handcuff them and take them back to Jerusalem for trial, for imprisonment, hopefully for execution. That's his goal until a blinding light. It's the middle of the day. He tells his testimony a couple more times in the book of Acts so we can piece together some of the details. Okay, it's at noon. The sun is out. It's bright. And yet he sees a brighter light. I mean a blinding light. A light that is so powerful and so strong that he's physically blinded and he's knocked to the ground. He falls. He and his companions, how many ever there were with him, they fall to the ground. The light is so bright, so 
stunning. Saul explains later that while no one else that was with him could see who this light was, he says it was Jesus that appeared to him. The glory of the Savior, so bright, so pronounced, so blinding, that his physical sight was taken away. In Galatians chapter 1, he says, He was pleased to reveal his son to me. And in 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul is defending his apostleship, he's saying that he saw the Lord Jesus. He describes himself as untimely born when he, Jesus, also appeared to me. And this was the event where Jesus made himself known to Saul. One minute he has physical sight, but was spiritually blind to who Jesus was. The next he was physically blind, but his spiritual eyes were being opened. And now he was seeing the Lord Jesus in all his glory. The blinding light was Jesus. His natural eyes saw a man condemned as a heretic. Now he's exposed to blinding glory. Jesus apparently was not who he thought he was. And now he's being confronted with the truth about who Jesus is. He got it wrong. Jesus is alive, not dead. He's glorious, not a condemned criminal. And he hears a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Augustine said, it was the head in heaven crying out on behalf of the members that were still on earth. There is a divine perspective here that we all need to have. This is one of the most significant verses in the Bible that helps us understand something about the church this bond between jesus and his people almost spoken of as one in the same you know what that's like to have family you're a dad touch my children you've touched me jesus the head of the church you persecute my people you're persecuting me do you hear the bond the connection between those two. Throughout the whole Bible, when Israel complained against Moses, Moses said, your murmuring is not against us, but against God. When the people rejected Samuel, God told Samuel, they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me. And Jesus told his disciples, he who hears you hears me, and he who rejects you rejects me and the one who sent me. He's making connections that are vital for you and I to understand. We need a divine perspective on the church. We need what the theologians call a right ecclesiology. One of the things that breaks my heart most often as a pastor is when I hear people's lousy ecclesiology. It's just terrible. Now, you don't have to be around long or go far to hear somebody tell you what's wrong with the church. Filled with hypocrites. I used to go to church until I got burned out, I got mistreated, I've been hurt, I've been wounded, and, and I am not here trying to make a case that those things 
do not happen at all. What point I would like to make is that unless you have a right ecclesiology, a right understanding of the church, you will in no way be prepared to handle any and all disappointments in the church. If you don't have a starting point of who the church is, you'll you'll be completely unprepared and incapable of coping with the flaws, the shortcomings, the troubles, the problems within the church and will in no wise be any part of the solution and the maturing and the, and the growing and the glory that is meant to come in and through the church. Jesus bound himself to this group, gave his life for these people, identifies entirely with this group of people, loves these people, saved these people, is in the process of sanctifying these people, And when you know and understand that, then and only then will you have what you need to cope with and be a vital member of the body of Christ. I had a conversation not too long ago with someone who was a son of a pastor and was very disillusioned with the church. And it was kind of, you know, being a pastor's kid, you get a little bit of an inside scoop and there was just... There was too much complaining, there was too much bickering, there was too much fighting, and it was quite disillusioning. And so his soul was kind of stuck in that state of disillusionment. And all I can think of, there's there's only one thing, one way to rebound and cope and step in. You've got to be able to walk into a room like this and say, these are the people Jesus died for. These are the people that Jesus set his affection upon and went to the cross for. These are the people that Jesus rose from the dead for. These are the people that Jesus has made a commitment of himself to, bound himself to, and promised to carry them through to the end and see them to a state of full glory. And unless you know that, how could you not be so disillusioned and distraught and even withdraw from being a part of a church. If you don't have a healthy, right, biblical ecclesiology, there's little hope for you to function well as a member. But when you have it, when you realize who's sitting in the room, who we are, Now, all of a sudden, you've got a foundation, you've got an ability, you've got where to go, what to do with, how to cope with, how to respond to, how to help build. Lord, give us a good, healthy, strong ecclesiology. Let's hear those words again, maybe for the first time. Who are you, Jesus? Well, I'm the one you're persecuting. No, I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting your followers. Yeah, like I said, you're persecuting me. I'm the one you're persecuting. If you and I can make that connection and realize the truth and the reality of that connection, it will equip us in an unusually strong way. Saul's eyes were now open to Jesus being the promised Savior, the Messiah for God's people. Jesus was now being revealed to this man as the fulfillment of everything that he had been studying since childhood. 
all the Bible verses that he had memorized, all the promises, all the prayers that he had prayed, now he was face to face with the one who was the fulfillment of it all. The one he had just previously written off as an enemy to all the things he had believed as a child. And now he's face to face with its ultimate fulfillment. Everything in the Old Testament that he studied and memorized and prayed was there facing him, the reality of it all. And in that moment, Saul is made into a new creation because Christ was revealed to him. That was the difference. Do you understand that this man knew his Bible better than all of us in the room, probably put together? He had memorized more scriptures. He had spent more time on his knees praying, rehearsing the Psalms. We could look at him and say, you're a better Christian than I am. You intimidate me with your devotion and your zeal for God. I feel sheepish when I'm around you. I feel like a failure as a follower of God when you're around. You're that good. And it was all wrong. It was all wrong because he got Jesus wrong. And now it was all changed because he's getting Jesus right. And he will later say, I count all of that loss if I could have Jesus and know him in the power of his resurrection. All my studying, all my preparation, all my degrees, it's nothing to me in comparison of knowing Christ. This was a life-changing moment for this man. So we have Saul, the enemy, we have Jesus, the bright light, and we end with Saul, the brother. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point because Saul is going to, in a sense, take center stage real soon in our study through the book of Acts. He's going to be the major player for much of the rest of our study, and so we'll be talking much more about him, but what we have in our text is that Saul spends the next three days praying and fasting. Can you imagine him trying to process this major significant change in his understanding of what God is doing? He thought he had it right, and it did not include Jesus, and now he's confronted with the reality that it was all about Jesus, nothing but Jesus. It all centers on Christ, and now he's confronted with this massive paradigm shift in his thinking and in his understanding. And so for three days, he's blinded, he's fasting, he's praying, trying to process it all, and then God sends Ananias to, to pray for him and inform him. He prays for him, he's healed, he regains his sight. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's informed about his future. You're going to be used of God, and you're also going to suffer for Christ. And he's baptized. And he is now a disciple of Jesus. Four days earlier, he wants to kill them, arrest them, would love to see them executed 
and now he is one himself. Do you see what God has done? Here's the conclusion, the heart of the matter. The enemy of God was conquered. The enemy of God was conquered. Saul went from being God's enemy to God's family. You know, there's much in the Bible about God's wrath and God taking out his vengeance on his enemies. And if we were to spend time looking at several of those passages, you, you cannot deny that there is a sense of God is telling his people. It's like me telling you, the church, church, I just rest assured God is going to execute his judgment on our enemies. In fact, I, I, want, to, I want you to feel the pleasure of knowing that God's going to destroy your enemies. I mean, it's the, it's the, it's the ultimate revenge movie. I mean, the, the whole story is like the ultimate, the Avengers, you know, the, the, they come in and they really deal with what's wrong and they take them out and they kill them. And there's many verses in the Bible that talk about this is what God's going to do. And it's often violent and destructive. But now, instead of Phineas shoving a spear through two people, now we have an enemy of God struck by a blinding light and two sentences from Jesus. There's probably more. There's something else about pricks and goading in there as well. A few sentences. And this enemy is transformed into family, into a friend. God has conquered his enemy. God has arrested his enemy. And God has transformed his enemy and made him his friend, his family, his worker, his disciple. This is the power of God to save us. Paul's conversion needs to inform ours. Okay? You don't need to be struck with a blinding light. Be blind for three days. Fast and pray. No food, no water for three days in order to be a Christian. But you do need to recognize who Jesus is. And you do need to recognize the glory of who Jesus is. That's a requirement. You have to realize that in your soul. If I said, who do you say that Jesus is? You have to have something inside of you that recognizes the glory of Jesus. Not just a man who was crucified on a Roman cross. Not just a man who went around with some wonderful teaching that we can glean from. You have to be able to see the glory. The glory of his humility and taking on humanity and assuming a servant's role. While seated at the right hand of God, he leaves it, sets it aside, sets aside this divinity and takes on this humanity and walks the earth with us. You've got to see the gloriousness of his obedience to the Father and his love for us in dying for us on the cross, accepting a criminal's prosecution and execution 
You see that wrath that was poured out, the wrath that Phineas was commended for, striking death. Jesus was the one that said, lay it on me. I will take that revenge. I will take that vengeance upon myself. I will take that punishment upon myself in order to set you free, in order to set you free. The glorious power of his new life and his resurrection, his glorious ascension being exalted above all things with all things in creation now like a footstool to him as he sits enthroned and reigns and rules over all. Do you see his glory? Who do you say Jesus is? And some of you that know the Lord, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten something of his glory? Have you lost sight of it? Has he drifted down to normal in your life? This realization, this ability to see the glory of Christ, everything in the life of the Apostle Paul came out of that. That's what started it all. That's what fueled him. That, that's why he was one of the most thankful people on the planet. He was one of the most happiest people on the planet. He had unusual ability to persevere. He had churches ridicule him, kick him out, run him out, ruin his reputation, and he turns around and writes them letters. Oh, my friends and family in Christ, my beloved ones. Where does that come from? It came out of Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, when he saw the glory of Christ. Do you recognize God's people? Do you recognize the church? What do you see? What do you see when you look at the church? You see problems? Yeah, me too. I'm a pastor. I spend almost all my time with church people, so all my problems are with church people. <laughs> if I get out on the golf course with some non-Christians, they're the happiest. I have a great time, and then I come back to work, and I got problems. But you know what gets me out of bed in the morning? Jesus died for you. He set his affection on you. And doggone it, if God can set his affection on you, so can I. And I should. And I do. And I love to. But if I don't have a sound ecclesiology, if I get distracted with everybody's foibles and my own that I bring to the table, we will lose heart. We will lose perspective. We will be fraught with infighting and arguing and complaining and murmuring, and we will not progress and we will not glorify God. We will not serve one another and we'll become another statistic of failed churches. But if we get out of bed in the morning and we realize, wow, that Ron, he's really a pill, he's really difficult, but I gotta tell you, Jesus sure does love him. And he belongs to Jesus. 
Come hell or high water, Jesus has promised to not let him go. So I guess we're going to have to put up with him. I guess we're going to have to make the best of this. And you should. And we should with one another. Because Christ has bound himself to us. We can now better, more rightly understand everything that the Apostle Paul has written to the churches if we understand this event in Acts chapter 9. We certainly will fail in trying to put anything into practice, really trying to comprehend what he was talking about, why he said what he said, how could we do what he's instructed us to do as a church, except because this has taken place. And so you too and me too, we need to see the glory of Christ, be changed by that brightness, that bright light. We need to hear the words of Christ. We need to know he's alive. He is speaking and he has spoken and he continues to speak. Worship team, you can come on up. Can we, can we close our time with a fresh hope and amazement in the fact that God defeats his enemies and makes friends out of them. Could you be, could you find some pleasure this morning in the fact that God is able to save the worst of sinners? Now that statement does not mean God only saves the worst of sinners. It is meant to communicate that it doesn't matter how bad you are. God's grace can reach you. And the person you've been praying for and thinking about who doesn't know the Lord, God's grace is powerful enough to touch them and to save them. It's that amazing. It's that powerful. Many of you in the room know that power, have tasted and experienced that very power. And our job, our role to this day in the life of the church is that we, being empowered by God's Spirit, continue to proclaim this good news, this wonderful gospel that can save the worst of sinners. Let's stand together.